Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. Great to be with you this morning. Um, It's great to see some new faces. It's uh, great just to have... Twana accent in the beginning. We had the raw accent, the Afrikaans accent from Uli. We had the English accent from Christy. I just love that. I love that to kind of see the different things displayed in front. And my heart is full as we were singing together. It was lovely. Uh, if you this morning here for the first time, we're in a series in the book of Acts that we've titled Saint as God sent Jesus. Jesus rose from the grave. He sent the Spirit to empower the disciples and the apostles to be living as the saint ones in this world. And they've started the church, and this church now lives as the saint ones, taking out the mission of God. And it's been an exhilarating ride so far. And this morning, I don't know where this is from, but this morning is a humdinger. It's a humdinger of a text. And so I hope you guys are strapped in. Hope you're ready for it. Um, I'm going to pray for us. I know there's been a lot of prayer. It's not going to be a long prayer, but we do need prayer for our hearts to not only hear the words, but to accept the words. It's only God who can change us. Let us pray. Father God, we are thankful that we can gather. We need to come now. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. It's only through your work that we can change that our hearts can soften, that we can respond, that we can bear fruit. We want this. We want this for your glory and for our benefit. Do this now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Fam, what are you willing to do to protect something you love? To what lengths are you willing to go to protect something you love or someone you love? What if that thing that you need to protect is yourself? To what lengths will you go to protect yourself? Now, there's a great example of to what lengths humanity will go to either survive or to protect themselves. It comes from a movie that is based on a true story, 127 Hours. Now, this film, it's an intense film. This film is based on uh, Aaron Walston when he went for a solo hike in the Utah Canyons in America. And when he went, he didn't tell anyone where he was going or when he would be back. So he went out by himself. And as he was walking and climbing in these canyons and in the crevasses, he lost his grip or his footing. He fell down, and a boulder came crashing down along with him. And as he fell down in one of these crevasses, the boulder, huge boulder, pinned his arm against the side, and he was stuck. So almost crushed but stuck under the boulder. And minutes turned to hours, turned to days. He only had a little bit of water, a pocket knife, and a flashlight. Very soon it dawned on him that he will have to do something drastic if he wanted to survive. Unless he does something drastic, he will die long before anyone will ever find him. And so what he did was he amputated his own arm with his pocket knife. This is drastic and a really intense film. Um, Do not watch it if you're squeamish. Just a disclaimer right now. But it does show us that if we're really serious in saving or preserving something, we will go to great lengths to do that, even if that means causing ourselves 
great bodily harm if it will ultimately help us. And though today's passage is pretty drastic as well. And it's going to be similar along the, long, along the same lines. The integrity of the church of God. To what lengths are we willing to go to protect the church of God? And maybe a further question that the text will answer us for us today. To what lengths is God willing to go to protect his church? More specifically, to what lengths will Jesus go to save his bride? And we see by reading the New Testament that God calls the church his bride. And that's what today's passage is all about. Now, today's passage is one of those passages that you normally, in your quiet time, don't spend a lot of time on. Um, it's not one of those feel-good passages. And actually, if you've been following with us the story of Acts, today's passage is actually quite jarring. It actually feels like it doesn't fit into the storyline. It feels out of place, almost difficult to make sense of. And so, just to remind us what has been happening in the story of Acts, Jesus commissions his disciples to make disciples of all nations. He equips them by giving them the Holy Spirit. And so empowered, emboldened by the Holy Spirit, we see the formation of the first Spirit-filled church. Thousands come to faith. Absolute revival is happening in Jerusalem. And this first faith community was a pretty special one. We see Time and time and again, descriptors of what they were doing. They were of unity of mind and unity of spirit. Constantly they are described as having all things in common, meaning that they voluntarily sold their possessions, took the money, and made sure no one was lacking. No one had any need. Super radical. Not only was the community special, but the apostles, the apostles were preaching up a storm. They were performing miracles. Things were moving forward. So much so that this caused a stir in the fortress of Jerusalem, the fortress of Judaism. And so even when they did encounter resistance from the local religious leaders, um, the local religious leaders imprisoned them. They threatened them. And they told them, you're not allowed to preach in this name anymore. However, the apostles were dead set on obeying Jesus and spreading the word of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the church continued to grow. It seemed like this was unstoppable. Nothing was going to stop this newfound church. And constantly we see the phrase accompanying these great works and this amazing new church. They were filled with the Spirit. We see in chapter 2, the outpouring of the Spirit. We see in chapter 3, Peter, filled with the Spirit, gave this great testimony in front of the council. Even in chapter 4, the, uh, the piece that Christu preached on last week, we see that the community was filled by the Holy Spirit. And once again, we understand that to be filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that you once again receiving a new spirit or more of the Holy Spirit, but in a special way, you're being controlled by the Holy Spirit to live in line with God's will, to live in step with the spirits. They were allowing the Holy Spirit to control their words and their actions. And even in today's passage, we saw that the first half of today's passage, the same refrain. This community was of unity of mind. There was unity of heart and of spirits. They were looking after one another the apostles were preaching with great power to the resurrection of Jesus. Everyone that sold something brought the proceeds to the apostles so that they in turn could help distribute it, distribute it to those in need. Phenomenal stuff happening. 
even as an example, we see one person highlighted. We see Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. This guy gave all that he had. He was a foreigner, came to live there, and he still chose to sell everything he had and give it to the apostles. Later, we see that he also gave himself to full-time ministry later in the book of Acts. So Luke kind of introduces Barnabas right here so that we kind of see the impact that the gospel had in this guy's life. Not only did he give all his possessions, but he gave all of himself to gospel ministry. So encouraging this community. And it's into this scene, <laughs> into this setting, that we see the rest of the story interjected. The first major scandal to hit the church. We read the account of Ananias and Sapphira. Pretty jarring. And so we see in verses 1 to 6 that something similar has been happening to them as well to what was happening in the community, but with a slight difference. We see that Ananias and Sapphira also decided, well, they're going to sell their property and they're going to give some of the money to the church. However, Ananias, with his wife's knowledge, held back some of the proceeds. In other words, they, for argument's sake, sold their property for a million rand, but decided that they're only going to give 700,000 to the church and keep 300,000. But they're going to tell everyone that they sold it actually for 700K. And so they were acting hypocritically wanting the rest of the community to think that they also gave the full amount of the church when in fact they both contrived together. It sounds like scheming. Scheming together to keep some of the proceeds for themselves. What happens next though, I can still understand the story up until this point. What happens next though is super intense. As Ananias brings the proceeds to Peter, he is judged in that moment, dies, and is buried. Scarcely three hours later, his wife, Sophia, comes in, tells the same lie, is also judged, dies, and is buried. I don't know about you guys, but every time I read this, my first reaction is, this is really harsh. This is super harsh. I mean, yes, they lied, they, they did sin, they were acting hypocritical, but they were still doing a good deed. <laughs> they were bringing money to the church and they died for a good deed. What happened to grace? What happened to Jesus' love? This is like Old Testament God coming to the fore here. Why this sudden and instantaneous judgment from God in this moment? Were they simply being hypocritical, or was there something more happening behind the scenes? That's a question that we've got to confront ourselves with this morning, and so we're going to dig a little bit deeper. Look again. Read with me the following verses from verse 3 and 4 and verses 9. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Similarly, verse 9, Peter said to Sapphira, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. We see in verse 3 the contrast that it, what has been happening to the community to what has happened to Ananias and Sapphira. I don't know if you picked it up. Peter says, 
Why has Satan filled your heart? Did you guys pick that up? To lie to the Holy Spirit. Rather like the rest of the narrative that we've been reading up to this point where people were filled with the Holy Spirit. We see that they were rather controlled or filled by Satan. They had given in to, to what Satan wants them to do. Furthermore, we see that the sin that they were committing, they weren't lying to man, they were lying to God. And this is a great principle that's being communicated this morning. And this is almost a sidebar to what I'm preaching right now. Sidebar, you said what I did there, Tremaine. Um, is that when we sin, when we hurt one another, the primary person or the primary agent whom we're sinning against isn't one another. It's always God. Yes, we feel the effects and the consequences of one another's sin. However, the primary person being wronged in any situation is God, against a holy God. There's no victimless crime. When we sin, we always transgress a holy God. Peter makes it clear. He's like, you guys were under no compulsion to sell your property. And even when you did sell it, the money actually belonged to you. So Peter is making it clear, guys, this is not a totalitarian society. This is not some form of early Christian communism where we're all living with the same thing, as many people have made the case. No. The fact that this unique community had done all these things and had all these things in common was simply because they were moved at that time to do so. They were moved by their compassion and they were moved by the love of Christ. There was no expectation that they should give it all to the church. And so when we consider all of this, why were they controlled by Satan? They were lying to God and they did not, they weren't forced to do this. We have to ask the question, why did Ananias and Sapphira feel the need to lie about the amount that they gave to the church? It's a pretty difficult question and one that we probably won't be able to answer for certain. However, Luke, the author of Acts, He's a brilliant writer. And so what he does is he puts stories next to one another to contrast the stories and to give us clues about what the story is really about. And so firstly, we see that this story, the scandal of Ananias and Sapphira, directly follows the contrasting and encouraging account of Joseph that gave all that he had. I don't know if you noticed this in the beginning. Joseph was called by the apostles, not just another member of the church, not by the community itself, but by the superior's apostles, he was called Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement. That's some recognition right there. I don't know about you. If that is a nickname that you had been given by the apostles, you were doing okay. These guys were rock stars. And it might have been that Ananias and Sapphira were driven by their desire to also receive that recognition from the community, to also let people note and see, wow, these guys gave so much to the church. They're amazing. You guys are such an encouragement to the faith. Man, thank God for you. Can anyone identify with that? Kind of that need to also, in whatever circles you're going, now we're just exchanging the game for, I want to be recognized at work, now I want to be recognized at church. Same game, different playing field. However, the problem was, Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted the recognition, but they still loved money. They still needed and wanted control and security that money gives them. And so what do you do? Well, it's pretty simple. You sell your money, 
or your property, you give some of the money, but tell people it's all the money and you keep some for yourself. And so it's a win-win-win situation. The church gets some money, you get the recognition you desire, and you still have some security and control. Win-win-win. Well, so they thought. Time and time and again, we see that every time during Jesus' ministry, when he encounters people, he is concerned with their hearts. He is concerned with the posture of their hearts, not with what they can bring to the table, not with what they have done, not with what they could do, but the posture of their heart towards their king. So essentially, what we're seeing in this account is not just hypocrisy, it's idolatry. Idolatry is when you start serving or worshiping in an idol. An idol is anything that you treasure that is not God. They treasured something more than God. Recognition, money, security. What infiltrated the church was far greater than just hypocrisy. It was the search for something other than God. It was the belief that something could satisfy more than Jesus. And so God intervenes in the early church. We need to see this this morning. It's a, it's a pretty hard passage. Even though there is forgiveness in Jesus, even though there is grace for our sins and our shortcomings, God still hates sin. And sin is always against God because God is a holy God. And secondly, we need to recognize that Jesus loves his bride, the church. And he is willing to go to extraordinary lengths to preserve her. We saw this during Jesus' ministry in Luke 19, 45 to 46, when he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Referring to more than just the actual building, the temple, but of the worshippers. Again, we see Paul reflecting on this in Ephesians 5. He says, Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus loves the church so much that he gave his life for her. He died on the cross. We were slaves, and Jesus bought us with his blood. And, and to maybe sound graphic, but that's the imagery being used here. We, we were basically prostitutes enslaved to a pimp. What Jesus did, he not just bought our freedom, but he took us into his house, into a marriage relationship. We became the spouse of Christ. That's the intimate relationship that's being described between Jesus and the, cross, and the church right here. He loves the church so much that he's willing to protect the church even against herself. When Jesus sees that the church is wandering off, going back to the previous life, back to the previous pimps, not caring for Christ as a one, to, one true love, he intervenes even when it is painful. So maybe as an illustration of what Jesus is doing and, and, and the scene this morning, and it's helpful that it's cold this morning because this illustration is apt, but if you go hiking in the snow and let's say you go climb Mount Everest 
and a part of your body gets exposed to the cold for too long, that part of your body dies and becomes gangrenous. You probably have seen a picture of it where your, the tips of your fingers or your toes become that blue purplish color. It's not where you want to be. Um, the thing that makes gangrene so dangerous is that it then poses a risk for the entire body. If left untreated, you'll probably die from it. And so treatment involves surgically cutting away all infected flesh, even amputating limbs in order to save the rest of the body. It's Aaron Rolston cutting his arm to save his life. Idolatry is the gangrene of the church. It is the infection that drives disunity and threatens to destroy everything that Jesus has bought with his blood. It's that serious. Ananias and Sapphira are effectively cut off from the church to stop the spread of this type of behavior. Now, there remains a lot of unanswered questions from this passage. Were they saved? Did they go to heaven? Um, why in this way did Jesus intervene, but not later in the church? Why were they punished right there and then and not some other form? And to be honest with you, I don't really know. I don't think we can know, but that's not the goal of the passage. The goal of the passage is rather to put the highlight, to put the spotlight on Christ's love for his bride. The focus that Jesus is communicating is how serious he is about the purity of the bride of Christ. And now we've got to ask, well, did this intervention work? What effect did it have in the community? I don't know if you saw the reaction that the community had in verses 5 and 11. When he fell down and breathed his last, great fear came upon all who heard it. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. What we see is that the whole church then returned the gaze to reverent worship of God. Back to the way it was when the church started. Remember Acts 2 verse 42, that perfect first church, the spiritful church. It said that the believers continued to devote themselves to what the apostles were teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and times of prayer. A sense of fear came over everyone and many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. Our heart posture should always be one of reverent worship, recognizing that God is the only sovereign God. He's the only one that we actually can come to. That Jesus is our only one true love. He is the one that deserves our worship. And Jesus will protect his church even from herself. And so now we've got to ask the question, what does this mean for us today? We see it doesn't look like God is intervening in the same way in the church. But how do we apply this passage? I think there's three different levels that I want us to think through. One is the universal or the global church, one that Tuki prayed for in the beginning. That's good, all the churches. One I want us to think about our local congregation as Red Door and then individually as well. We need to apply this passage. The universal church. Fam, we see many churches that stray from the truth of the gospel. And I do believe that God will in some shape or form protect the church. He will ensure that the bride of Christ is kept until Christ's return. Even though many will fall away, some will remain. Even as we look at history, many atrocities were actually committed by churches. However, 
time and time again, we see that God steps in and he intervenes. He allows things to happen in the church that seems devastating at the time, but actually bears fruit later on. Usually I'm very worried and discouraged as I look at Christians around me and churches around me when I see that people wander from the truth. And my first reaction is actually not to pray, but to think, what are we going to do? How are we going to be the bastions of truth? But friends, that's vain thinking. Christ loves his church way more than we do. What we rather should do is posture our hearts in reverent worship and pray to the God who can change things. Rather than having the posture of we've got the right answer and they should just follow us. That vanity always creeps into my heart somehow. We see that he protects his church. Time and time and again, there's reformation, there's revival, there's a return to the truth of the word of God and the good news of Jesus Christ. We see persecution and God using that sometimes to even purge and purify the church. It's clear in Revelation as we read those letters to the seven churches that some churches will close down if they don't repent and turn back to God. That will happen. The question for us as Red Door Church is, will we be part of those who are preserved or will we be cut off? That brings us to us as a local community. The second level of education. That question, this issue, this text should make us serious about sin in our midst. Make no mistake, friends. God will close this church if we don't hold true to the truth of the gospel. Oftentimes when we communicate the grace of God, it might sound like we're saying that sin doesn't matter because Jesus paid for it all. Sin isn't that serious. Family, it very much does matter. What grace actually does, it allows us to be honest about our sin, not to hide it away. It allows us to come to the throne of grace because there will be mercy for those who come. But for those who constantly try and hide their sin, it will lead to destruction. Individually, yes, but corporately as well. If we are tolerant of sin in our midst, it will lead to our destruction as a community. Why? Because of his love. It's because of his love that he won't allow us to continue on that trend. It's because of love that we want to disciple one another. It is because of we understand grace that even when we disciple one another, we actually chase one another when we don't want to be chased. When we commit to being family with one another, the thing that we're actually saying to one another is, I'm giving you license to love me, even in times when I don't want to be loved. Know this this morning, if you're part of the family, sorry for you. Know this, that when you do fall into sin and you actually do want to turn away from the church, we're not simply going to allow you. We're going to chase you. We're going to love you. We're going to pursue you. It's sometimes even love will be communicated in discipline and in rebuke and in admonishment. Family, myself, I want you guys as a community to love me in this way. I want you guys to commit to this. I want you guys to say, Rankies, if you fall away, if you by some way, shape, or form start to believe a lie, we're not going to allow you to continue. I want you guys to love me enough to have the difficult conversations. We much rather wouldn't want, to want those conversations, am I right? Who wants to have a difficult conversation? Love is actually moving into the difficult space. So many times our comfort cancel culture tells us that love means accepting everything. No. If you have kids, that's not the truth. 
It's actually love is sometimes being the person who people don't like because you're having the hard conversations. It's pursuing. It's stepping into those awkward spaces. Even taking the backlash, and you will have backlash. We are not a perfect community. Actually, quite the opposite. We are a broken community, but we can be honest about it. And we are striving to live in step with the Spirit. We want to be a community that's filled with the Holy Spirit, meaning we're controlled by the Holy Spirit. When we confess together as a community our sins, when we have times of confession, this happens in communion or prayer or, or whatever times we have, the goal is not to guilt trip one another so that we somehow feel more holy. No, confession is constantly a testing of heart. Am I being filled with the Spirit or is Satan filling my heart with all the other idols in the world? And it happens so quickly. And so daily we need to return back to confession and test, am I trusting only in Jesus? I know we just want to talk about the positive things of Christianity, but because we have this reverent love and fear of God, we need to do this frequently, and we need to realize that our culture is not in tune with this way of thinking. Maybe even an example in the Christian world, how we're not in tune of thinking is how we do our song, our praise and worship. Do you know that Psalms is actually the guide of how we should sing together corporately? And did you know that the vast majority of psalms are laments and confessions? They're of somber nature. However, if you go look at what's topping the Christian charts out there, I don't think it's going to be laments and confession. We prefer to only sing the upbeat praise songs. However, we also need, I'm not saying that's bad, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm talking about having equilibrium. If that's a word. <laughs> we need to be in a space as well, communally, to posture our hearts so that the Holy Spirit can search what we're not trusting us for, so that we can hear the Holy Spirit's voice and then react to it. If we don't take these times to do this in confession, what happens is, the noise just drowns the Spirit's voice out. So busy, so loud, so doing other things, doing just good things, that we actually don't hear the prompting of the Spirit and we don't realize that our hearts are being filled with all the other demigods rather than Jesus himself. This should happen corporately, but individually as well. The beauty of personal confession, it gives you opportunity to once again believe and accept the gospel. It gives you the opportunity to once again hear the magnificent truth that you are a forgiven daughter and son of the God Most High. That's what confession does. When we don't confess regularly, one of two things happen. Either we continue our Christian lives, but we know something's off. We know we've got some beef with God, and I haven't really spent time with God right now, and we subconsciously try to make up for it. You just try to be a better person. Going to give a little bit more here, do a little bit more Christian things, and, and maybe my conscience is appeased, and God is happy with me, going to help someone in need. But all that we're doing actually in those moments is we're suppressing the work of the Holy Spirit because we're not on the right foot with God. 
We can't hear the Spirit's voice. A life and a conscience like that cannot be in tune with what God is doing. So he might be doing a lot of good stuff, but not spiritful stuff. Or the more dangerous part of this, if we don't confess regularly, is that our hearts become harder. Our conscience becomes increasingly seared, burned, justifying ourselves. I'm actually not that bad. There are people that are way worse than me out there. The longer we do this, the harder our hearts get and the more difficult it becomes to hear the voice of the Spirit and actually also then to listen to this voice. You might hear the voice, but it's becoming softer, but I just don't want to listen to it anymore. And friends, if we continue down that path, it will lead to you walking away from the faith, no doubt. So family, I know this morning this sounds like a harsh sermon. It's like warning and there's, uh, a, a, there is a definite warning in here, obviously, this morning. But I want us to hear the encouragement in this as well. I want us to see the heart of Jesus. We, we always individualize this and only identify it with Ananias and Sapphira. But I want us to recognize the heart of Christ that he so desperately loved the church that he intervenes. And that's what he's doing this morning. He's intervening. Every Sunday he is intervening through his Holy Spirit. Daily he is calling us back with his still small voice saying, come and trust in me again. See the love that I have for you. See that I'm not just making empty promises. In fact, I've already given my life for you. It is worth putting your, your, your life and your love in Christ. Everything he does, and we need to believe this all the more, he does for our good and his glory. Isn't that amazing? He loves us more, even more than we can love ourselves. Friends, and so the way that we remind ourselves of this is actually counterintuitive. It is through confession. It is through that we once again say, I've messed up. I've got nothing to bring to the table. That's what it means to have faith like a child. Not innocently believing everything, but a child can't bring anything to the table. It's just like, ah, it's just me. That's us before God this morning. We've got nothing to give him. And yet he accepts us. And so fam, we're gonna, we're gonna move into that time right now. I don't know where is the band, but Pink, you can, you can give a holler. And the band can start making their way up. And as they're setting up, I want us to move into a time of confession. So this is what I want us to do. We're going to have first personal confession. So right there where you are, closed eyes. I'm inviting you to do business with God. I'm inviting you to, to see his love and to maybe confess where and how you've trusted in different things. I'm going to give us a moment for that. And at the end of that, I'm going to close for us in prayer and a corporate confessional prayer. And after that, we'll sing together the last song. And so let's do that right now. A couple of minutes, business with God. Let's do that. Amen.